You're listening to Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Now, here's Pastor Scott. We're in Philippians chapter 3, and so we're going to read verses 17 to 21. So if you would stand, please, as we read the Word of God. By standing, we are giving the Lord... uh, honor and glory for this precious word we have before us. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Father God, we pray over this section of scripture. Open our heart to receive what we discover. Open our ears to hear your voice to us personally and collectively here as a church. And Lord, we know that you have set up this divine appointment between us and you here on this morning. So speak to us, we pray, through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we've covered chapter 3 of Philippians, we have seen that we can look at the chapter and see four distinct sections. And a few weeks ago, we did verses 1 to 6, which is the first section. And in this section, Paul lays out the seven things that he used to trust in, things that brought esteem to him among his colleagues, things that he poured himself into to be found righteous before God through the law of Moses. It was was what his life was wrapped up in. And he includes that because then the next verses he's going to tell what happened and the shift that happened in his life because in the contrast here in the second section which is verses um, 7 through 11 he emphatically states that he took everything that he had trusted in before to find acceptance with God and he threw it in the trash never to go back to it again He counted it as worthless as animal excrement because that's what the word rubbish means in the Greek. 
And that's pretty radical. I mean, it's pretty radical for him to use that term. But he said there's nothing redeemable in, in looking at those things anymore before God because my righteousness it was a gift from God to me through my faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That was, that, that's the dynamic there that goes on in that second section, verses 7 through 11. Then in the third section, which we covered last week, verses 12 through 16, we see these powerful words that he pens on parchment as he talks about pressing in to know him, laying a hold of him in his plan for my life, reaching forward to fulfill all that Jesus had for him in his plan for Paul. And now we come to the fourth section, verses 17 to 21. And in this section, we're going to focus mainly on that glorious moment that the New Testament speaks of when we are caught up to meet the Lord Jesus in the air and our physical, mortal, vile bodies will be transformed, metamorphosis into his glorious body, like like his glorious body. And um, so we'll spend our time at the end talking about that. But let's begin here in verse 17 because he starts with this phrase, brethren, join in following my example. He had just told them in the previous verses, be of the same mind, use my life as a pattern. And so now he's saying, brethren, and remember in Philippi, it was a collection of house churches because there wasn't any one big room that they met in. It was smaller house churches. And so he says, listen, join together in having these things as your goal. What things? The things he had just mentioned all through chapter 3. So you go back to chapter 3 and read them again, kind of catch a a heart, and you'll see this um, exhortation of the Apostle Paul to the Philippian brethren to be unified. To Look at the first part of chapter 2, and there's this call to unity, a call to like-mindedness. Be of the same mind. This doesn't mean robot thinking. That means that you're walking in love, making others more important than yourself and following the example of Jesus as he became a servant to all as the first few verses of chapter 2 describe. And so he says here, let my life be a pattern, be an example to you to follow. And the word example here in the Greek means the impression left by a stroke or a stamp. In other words, Paul says, let my life stamp your lives and leave an impression of godliness. And you know, as we look at our lives, we will leave an impression upon the next generation, either for good or for evil. Sometimes, I mean, it's amazing to go to a funeral and you can have the most radical scoundrel be talked about as if he was a saint because he's not there because nobody speaks bad things at a funeral. But you examine his life and the life was just destroyed. 
And it impacted his family. It impacted his sons and his daughters and, and all of their friends. He, he was just an, an evil man and, and hurt people. Having a legacy that hurts people at the end where they're glad that you're gone is not the kind of legacy God wants for us. God wants to build in us a change of character by the power of his Holy Spirit that impacts the next generation for good. And that's called a legacy. You're going to leave a legacy one way or the other. Uh, I think of King Saul in the Old Testament. He started off with such promise, but then 40 years later, his legacy was such a selfish, self-focused, self-centered man. He drove the people into the ground for his own ambitions. And he died on the battlefield. I, I, I mean, it, it ruined the life of, the, of his son, Jonathan, who would have been a great next king. But God had to remove Saul's lineage from being in the line of the next king because there had to be a, a pattern that was left saying, this is not what I want for my people. Leaving a godly legacy, my example, impacting the next generation. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. <clears throat> Paul wasn't being an on an ego trip here, he was just saying, as long as you see me following Christ, let that be a pattern for you. The Bible doesn't speak of blind loyalty. It's, it gives a biblical loyalty. Biblical loyalty means that those that God has set to be mentors, to be pastors, to be uh, leaders, to be elders, they're there to give you a mature picture of what it looks like to follow Christ. They're disciplers. But to follow someone who's trying to disciple you and they're living in sin themselves and excusing it, that's not the loyalty God talks about. It's not blind loyalty. Biblical loyalty is that God does put elders and pastors in your life to encourage you, to exhort you, sometimes to rebuke you, to, to disciple you, to, to bring you to maturity, like Ephesians 4 says. There, there's an accountability that happens when you gather together as a church. And the difficulty with online church is there's no accountability for your life to anybody, because you can just be there in your jammies and your hot chocolate and watch church, you know, and, and yet you don't want to go there because you don't like people. And, and dude, there's something wrong with that mindset. And there's, it's one thing to be laid up with it, uh, illness or, or disease or something or frailty and you can't make it, but to use that as an excuse to avoid accountability is sin because the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ, which means simply to follow after his example, his pattern. 
And then he continues on in verse 17. He says, note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. And notice the plural in the last phrase of the sentence. You have us as a pattern. Now, he, he first of all says, follow my pattern. And then he says, follow our pattern. Who's our? Who's us? It's Timothy. Timothy and him who are at the head of the epistle writing to the Philippian brethren. And he talks about Timothy a lot in chapter 2. And so Timothy's life was also a pattern of a life to follow as, as a discipler in the Lord. And there are others. Note those who so walk among you that are, are following these same truths and principles in their life. And God will put different people in your life to just impact you. When, when my wife and I uh, got saved at age 18, um, the people that led us to Christ were going to this black Pentecostal church in Northeast Portland called Maranatha. And uh, they wanted us to go. And so, I mean, I was, a, I was a musician, played in a rock band and all. And so, it, you know, it's like, well, I don't want to go. I suppose I'll go. Man, the music was awesome. I mean, this guy on the organ was unbelievable. And so the music was like fascinating. And then the preacher, I mean, this is 1969, right? And the preacher was rapping before there was any rap. I mean, he rhymed every single line in his message, and he wasn't reading anything. He was just strutting back and forth on the stage, and he was speaking these truths out, and every truth rhymed with the next truth. And I'm going, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, and then there's, you know, the, you know, the Leslie and the organ and all. Leslie is just a, for those of you not musicians, yeah, it's a long story, okay. But it's, it's a, it, to me, it's a real cool addition to a Hammond organ. Okay. Okay, let's switch that. But here's the thing. While I was going to that church, behind us, there was this old cowboy and his wife. And we were hippies, right? So he taps us on the shoulder, introduces himself, and we start meeting with him, and he and his wife took us under their wing and discipled us in the basics of the faith. So here is this old saddle maker, eighth grade education guy from Texas, who because of his love, he took these two hippies in and began to disciple us. And I mean, you, I mean it's like a movie, but I'm, I praise the Lord for him, Nick and Georgia Gray. God wants you to impact someone else. And it comes through a random meeting, maybe just introducing yourself, but there's something on your heart that says, I need to spend time with this individual and help them through the beginnings of their faith in Christ. Paul says, note those who so walk as you have us for an example. Why is it important to have uh, mentors in our life like this because left on our own we will default to being satisfied with our journey just where we've come um, I've made it I've, I've kind of I've worked through a lot of things I like how I am right now I just want everything to stay the same status quo 
But what happens though, it's like paddling upstream in a canoe and you stop paddling. And all of a sudden, the forward motion you're making is slowing down and you're enjoying the ride and you don't realize that you're going backwards <laughs> because the purpose of the oars in the water is to make you go forward against the stream of the culture. We need those that inspire us. We need those that help us to want to go higher, go deeper, be more honest, be more intimate in our fellowship with the Father and His Son. We need those people in our lives. Because without them, we start becoming self-satisfied and, and uh, it's just so easy to fall into complacency. And then this shifts into verse 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. You see, Paul was concerned that the progress that they had made in Jesus would be slowed down and ruined by those coming in and using the grace of God as a license to allow any kind of desire and pleasure in their life they wanted to. Because after all, I'm saved, my sins are forgiven. Let's just live like the devil. It doesn't matter. Paul says, man, for the past 12 years, I have been with you and I have labored and I've planted and I have, I have watered and I have weeded and I don't want that to be ruined. Because there were those that were coming in to, to give licentiousness to the, to the cross of Christ. And they were enemies. He calls them enemies of the cross. He was passionate about this. And, and you gotta remember, this is the Roman world. And you, know, you had the Greek world and then you had the Roman world and there was a whole lot of Greek philosophies that were still hanging around in the Roman world. One of those philosophies is called Epicureanism. And this is a philosophy which elevated the senses to be the highest goal for fulfilled living. So that was a, a Greek philosophy. Epicurus was the Greek philosopher who spun this. And, and, and I, as I read the definition of Epicureanism, I want you to think of our society today because Epicureanism is alive and well. So here is Epicureanism. Um, as we've looked at a definition here. The Epicureans were followers of Epicurus, an ancient Greek philosopher. They believed in a philosophy that centered around seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. However, their understanding of pleasure went beyond immediate gratification and focused on long-term happiness and tranquility. They advocated for the pursuit of simple pleasures such as friendship, intellectual pursuits, and the absence of physical and mental disturbances. Safe places. <laughs> Epicureans also emphasized the importance of knowledge and the understanding of natural phenomena to overcome fears and anxieties. Sounds like Star Trek, actually. 
Their philosophy encouraged living modestly and in harmony with nature. Now, don't tell me that that's not happening today. Absolutely. It saturated our society. The Epicurean philosophy of life, as well as those identified in verses 18 and 19, were another danger to the church. Of, because here's the thing. Paul identifies them as enemies of the cross of Christ. Why did he have to, why did he say that? That's a pretty serious thing to write. Well, it's because the cross was the only means by which our Savior could have paid the penalty for our sins. He bled and he died on that instrument to purchase our redemption. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. That doesn't talk about an easy life. That talks about a life of self-denial, which is completely different than the Epicurean philosophy. That's why he calls them enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he gives a threefold way of identifying them. Their end is destruction from the judge of all. There's a day of accountability and they will be judged. The God that they really serve is their own desires and lusts. He calls them, their God is their belly, which is like the base desires and lusts that come out of their life. That's all they're chasing is lusts. And their glory is in shameful things that the Lord sees as shameful. And yet they, they boast in their conquests that were shameful in the Lord's eyes. And Paul didn't want them following and, and falling into that. He says, listen, our citizenship is in heaven. And now we come to the second part, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Who's Paul talking to here? He's talking to believers in the city of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. And if you were born in Philippi, you had automatic Roman citizenship. Kind of like Tarsus. You remember Saul of Tarsus? He had Roman citizenship and he used it occasionally to help himself in situations. But Roman citizenship wasn't given to everybody in the Roman Empire. It was only for those who either paid a huge sum of money or those who were born in a Roman colony such as Philippi. So remember that the Philippian brethren were in house churches. Uh, there were some slaves, some freed slaves, some um, non-Roman citizens that were part. Slaves couldn't be ever Roman citizens. Freed slaves couldn't be Roman citizens. But Paul says, listen, I know you understand you have citizenship in Rome. But as believers, our true citizenship is in heaven. It's a better citizenship. It has better privileges and it's long-lasting. I looked up what the rights were that Roman citizens enjoyed, and here's what I found. First of all, they had the right to vote. 
as a Roman citizen, you had the right to participate in the political process through voting in assemblies and, and electing officials. The second privilege that Roman citizens had is legal protection. Roman citizens were entitled to legal uh, protection under Roman's law, Roman law. They had the right to a fair trial, the right to legal representation, and the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. The third thing that Roman citizens enjoyed were property rights. Citizens had the right to own property and pass it on to their heirs. They were protected from unlawful seizure or confiscation of their property. Number four, there were marriage and family rights that were allowed to the Roman citizen. Citizens had the right to enter into legal marriages, have legitimate children, and enjoy the legal benefits and responsibilities associated with family life. Number five, Roman citizens had freedom from certain forms of punishment. Roman citizens were generally exempt from certain harsh forms of punishment such as crucifixion, which was considered a degrading punishment reserved for non-citizens. And number six, Roman citizens had the right to appeal. They had the right to appeal their cases to higher authorities seeking a fair review of the judgment if they believed they'd been wrongly convicted or treated unjustly. Remember, uh, Paul the Apostle appealed to Caesar when things were getting wonky and, and, and got out of control. Hi, this is Pastor Scott from Foothills Calvary. I hope the Lord is speaking to you through today's message. I wanted to just take a second and invite you to join us for worship services at Foothills Calvary. We meet Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. If you'd like more information on Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. Now let's get back to our study. I pray that the Lord will continue to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. Okay, Roman citizenship. Here's the deal. When the persecution came upon the Christians, all that was thrown out. <laughs> they put them in the Colosseum and fed them to wild beasts, even if they were Roman citizens, for the sake of the pleasure of the crowds, using the Christians as scapegoats for anything that went wrong. Wait a minute, I'm a citizen of Rome, forget it. And as believers, we have to see that our true citizenship is in heaven. We are part of another kingdom. We're part of a heavenly kingdom. We know the king of this kingdom, King Jesus. Not King Charles, <laughs> King Jesus. And, and why is why is citizenship in heaven better than citizenship in any country on the earth here? First of all, and David Guzik has comments on this, and he says, as citizens, we are under the government of heaven. 
As citizens, we share in heaven's honors. As citizens, we have property rights in heaven. As citizens, we enjoy the pleasures of heaven. As citizens of heaven, we love heaven and feel attached there. As citizens of heaven, we keep in communication with our native home. We are just passing through. We are called pilgrims on the way to a sacred land. We are strangers because we're, we're not a part of this world. We've died in Christ to this world. We're a new creation, and yet he leaves us here. Wouldn't it be glorious when you gave your life to Christ and you said, forgive me of my, of my sin, move into my life, make your home there, thank you. You just get taken to heaven. That would be tremendous. Of course, no one would be there to, to lead you in a sinner's prayer because everybody would be gone the moment that they said it, you know. God leaves us here in this world to be lights and to be salt because people still need to hear the gospel. And when he's done with us, he'll take us home. But in the meantime, we are just passing through and we are to be representatives, ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. Every one of us. You don't have to have a, an official position in a church. You just have to be a believer and use your world sphere, your life sphere as your mission field. Actually, we had in our church in Exeter, England, we had a sign over the door as you left. It says you are entering your mission field because it's out there where the mission is. That, that's where you want to shine your light. Our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20 says, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> We're resident aliens on this earth. Resident aliens. We have the right to work here, but our true citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship in heaven is more sure, more just, more glorious, more lasting. But we're not merely citizens of heaven. We've been brought into the family of the God of the heavens and the earth. That makes us royalty. If King Charles in England adopted you into his family, you would have some royal status, which you didn't have before. We've been adopted into the family of the God of the heavens. Not only that, we're engaged to the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus the Messiah. We're going to reign with Jesus and we will share in the heavenly inheritance with him. So we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we find we don't want to eagerly wait for his return. It's because we've kind of gotten our little rootlets down into things in this life that are so more important. I remember um, after I got saved, um, we got married six months later at age 18. 
And I remember saying, Lord, don't come until I get married because I want to experience what it means to be married. And it was a selfish prayer. God didn't hear me. Here we are. And then, at the birth of our child, I'm going, God, you know, don't take me home. I want to see this. And, and so you always have deals that you're trying to make with God. And he understands. And he'll do what he, he's going to do anyway. But the reality is, are we eagerly waiting? Are we eagerly waiting for our Savior with anticipation? And it reminds me of how a bride who is engaged to her bridegroom is waiting for him to knock on the door where she is and take her to the wedding. Because you see, in Jesus' time, this is how weddings took place. The parents arranged the marriage. And um, I'm glad my parents didn't arrange my wedding, by the way. Um, I, I, I like who I chose. <laughs> I mean, I like uh, my girlfriend, and, and we got married much to the dismay of uh, my folks and her folks. But now that I'm older and I'm looking at my kids and, our, and grandkids, I'm thinking, you know, I think... I would have liked to have chosen their spouse, actually. Because, um, you, you know, like Forrest Gump says, life is like a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get. Um, your, your, your son comes home and you go, y this is the one? <laughs> and then you find out, you know, it's, that's, it's a good thing. Back in Jesus' time, the parents arranged the marriage. And so the, the, the whole process was once that engagement took place, engagement was as solid as marriage but without consummation. And you couldn't break an engagement except by a, re, a bill of divorcement, even just engagement. And so during the engagement, the, bride, the potential bridegroom would go and start building his place for their marriage on top of his father's house. And then the father had the right to say, when it's time to go get your bride. And at that time, when the, when the room was done above his father's house, then the father would give the son the right to go and get his bride. And so with procession, the, the bridegroom would go to where the bride was, who during this time was preparing herself and making herself ready. And, and as time went on, the excitement was there, was growing. And then there was the knock at the door. And it was the bridegroom come to collect his future bride and to take her to the place of the wedding. That's the Jewish wedding during the time of Jesus. I want you to think of that in light of what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14 before he left. John chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. In my Father's house are many mansions, which means rooms, simply. It's, I know the songs, I've got a mansion on the hilltop, you know, little Western songs. Dude, 
The word mansions just means rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Jesus is coming for his bride, and it's called the rapture of the church. And this is so important for us to understand that that event will happen on a day called today because it never happens tomorrow because we, we never live in tomorrow because when we wake up at 2 in the morning, it's today still. Even though at 10 p.m. you think it's tomorrow, but when you wake up, it's present tense. It's going to happen on a day called today. As we've mentioned earlier, you were born on a day called today. You gave your mother pain on a day called today. And we're going to leave this life on a day called today, one way or the other. But then let's take a look at verse 21. Talking about the Lord Jesus who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. This focuses on the day when our, our lowly, mortal, physical, vile body, as the King James says, vile, that's a good word actually, when our physical body will be changed from dust to glory. This is not a resuscitation where all of a sudden I feel like a teenager again, you know, in the physical body. No, it's a complete glorification. And the prototype is the Lord Jesus when he died and was put in that tomb and he rose again in a glorified body on the third day, all that was left was the grave clothes. All that was left. His body was not there. It was transformed metamorphosis and so on that day when the Lord brings us to that place where our lowly body is transformed and to be conformed to liken to his glorious body my grave clothes are this and it's when I get caught up I mean my, my socks are in my shoes and I'm, I'm wearing all these clothes, and so it's all gonna just be in a nice, neat little pile, and I'm gone. My, my wedding rings will be here, my watch will be here, my glasses will be here. It's all in this nice, li neat little pile down on the floor. My fillings aren't gonna be converted. They're, they're down there as well. And, and suppose you had open heart surgery and you had a pig valve, like my dad did, put in his heart. Well, pig valves aren't going to go to heaven. They're not going to be. So that, that thing is like moving around like this. It's, and, and what happens if you, if you get a, um, like a, a cadaver bone put in you to help you? And what if, what if that person's an unbeliever? Well, that bone will stay here too because I'm going to get transformed. 
kind of trippy little things to think about here, but it's a, a glorification that's not a mere resuscitation. That's, that day is coming who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to like his glorious body because he was flesh and blood. It reminds us of what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 to 18. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, who have fallen asleep, died in Christ. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And at that time, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. And that's a Greek word, harpazo, which means to be snatched away quickly together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. There's that marriage. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Even though heaven is our home, our goal isn't just to get to heaven, it's to be with our bridegroom. It's the person of Jesus. What bride standing at the altar says, I'll marry you because only one is your house? Um, how ridiculous is that? That's like some gold digger. You know, all they want is the goods. But we're in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 to 54, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or, fall or, or die physically but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. For us to be with the Lord at that time, there has to be a metamorphosis, a change in all things. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. How does this happen? It happens according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Think about this. The Holy Spirit of God who dwells in you right now as a believer in Jesus, that same Holy Spirit had the power to glorify the body of Jesus. It was the, the working of the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that, the same Holy Spirit that lives in us. So why do we think we're powerless to conquer our addictions, to conquer our, our waywardness, to conquer uh, the things that we just seem to always yield to? And, and it's not that the Holy Spirit is too weak and our flesh is stronger than the Holy Spirit. 
It's that we aren't drawing upon him to give us the power for the moment to conquer sin. It's all him. If you have been addicted and God has brought you out of that addiction, it's not about you. It's not about your free will. And it's not about you've done all the 12 steps and I'm, I'm proud of that. No, it's God's power who brings you the victory over sin. Or else you're starting to boast in your own efforts. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, John writes, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than than he who is in the world. So for all of us, as I close here, it's time for us to settle in our hearts that from this day forward, we will press on. We will lay hold of. We will reach forward with all our focus to be all that God wants us to be in this life and to eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because that transformation is coming. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in your word this morning, and we're asking for you to do a work in us to draw us closer to you than we've ever been before. Stir our hearts, Lord. Stir our hearts to want to go deeper with you, to take the time to let you be our focus and not so much the focus of our earthly goals. And so, Lord, right now, we ask you, as a congregation, to do that work in us according to, the, to your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been Alive and Powerful with Pastor Scott Morrison. We hope you are blessed by today's message. Alive and Powerful is the radio ministry of Foothills Calvary, a fresh and growing fellowship in Lakewood, Colorado. We invite you to come and join us as we study the Word together, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. We meet at 12344 West Alameda Parkway in Lakewood, just a few blocks west of Union and Alameda. For more information about Foothills Calvary, please visit our website at foothillscalvary.org. That's foothillscalvary.org.